Well, uh, it's really kind of unbelievable that it's been a year since we started this podcast. We didn't really have any idea where this was going to all go. Derek and I started talking about what it would be like to have a podcast about um, in early fall of 2019. before there was any pandemic, uh, before the world so radically changed for pretty much everybody. Um, yeah, we were at a conference. Last time I was at a conference and... Yeah, I mean, I remember we were at a we were at the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport conference in Virginia Beach, sitting in a hotel room, saying not many people are having these conversations about harm, athletic labor, fandom... Um, in the context of collegiate athletics, but sport more broadly. Uh, we chatted about what it might be like to, to have occasional conversations that we recorded about sport and labor and harm. And like, I don't really think we had any idea of what we were actually talking about, what, what it would actually look like um, and sound like and sort of what the MO of such a podcast would even look like. So I think we had an idea, but we we didn't really have something concrete. And then it kind of went back on the back burner until um, until the pandemic shook everything up and and we started to go a little bit stir crazy and and wanted the chance to to just make some interventions about what we were seeing around us. You know, and, that, and that's why we just we just decided Let's do it. Let's, let's let's start this podcast thing. For me, I remember at the end of March 2020, um, I was sitting in my basement at the time, um, not able to go anywhere. Everything was shut down here in Ontario, Canada. And I was looking around. Um, Rudy Gobert famously um, just sort of tested positive and shut down the NBA, which kind of culminated in shutting down the rest of sports. Um, and as someone who typically kind of turns on sports uh, or has had a past of turning on sports um, just in the background, I sort of noticed a void um, in in my daily routine. Um, and I, for the first time in my life, I was experiencing what I thought, what I characterized as the true end of sport. There was literally no sport happening. And that was the first time in my life that I had experienced something like that. And and this was a, a profound moment for me, I think, in my realization of how incredibly world and universe changing what was happening really was. And to be honest, I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to think about it. I wanted to speak to others, experts about it. Um, and I really just wanted to do something, to do anything and be somewhat productive during this time. So as Nathan and I sort of reconnected and, and started talking about everything happening, we saw it as a sort of natural moment to really launch into something. I don't even know what it was in that sort of first conversation, that first um, DM that, that we shared. 
And I think that listeners can get a sense of that. Listening to the first two or three episodes, I don't think we even had a sort of clear vision for what was going on. We just wanted to get thoughts about the pandemic and athletic labor and harm out there for who knows who would listen to to hear. But those first episodes were really formidable in terms of the creation of the podcast sort of MO. And if it wasn't for guests like Jules Boykoff, Liz Knox, Michael Shue, Max Alvarez and Ryan Boyd, Victoria Jackson and Andy Schwartz and Elizabeth Williams, I'm not really sure where the podcast would have gone. Those interviews really made clear um, the level of preparation um, that's required to really do these topics justice. And talking to them and working with them, we really realized that um, our sort of MO would be obviously talking about harm and justice in sport, but trying to dig as deep um, and as nuanced as we possibly could into these topics, rather than just describing them simplistically or providing sort of reductionist takes on them. And that, I I hope, has sort of remained the common thread in all of our themes. Perhaps some haters and trolls would disagree with that one. And so we, you know, we were sort of, then we started rolling along, um, and then we interviewed Johanna, and that was an unbelievably fortuitous opportunity and moment for us. But I do remember um, hearing about the podcast or sort of the beginnings of the podcast on Twitter. I, I was friends with Nathan um, just from sort of sharing ideas and kind of research and stuff like that. Although I did not know him well at all. I think we had maybe DM'd a few times about a couple things, but, but I really didn't know him well. And I didn't know Derek at all, which is weird to say at this point. Um, so I didn't really know them. Um, but I remember hearing about the podcast and being really curious about what it was. And then listening to that first episode where they just do this super deep dive reflective take and, and just being really, really impressed and just nodding my head vigorously. Like I was at like some kind of rock concert, just like really excited and really jazzed about what it was that they were talking about. And, um, and I still, and, and I've assigned that first episode on um, my assigned it last fall in my sport history class. And, and my students, when they listened to it, they reminded me kind of how, um, how important it is and how uh, sort of impressive it is that, that Nathan and, and Derek took that, for, took that first episode to be so reflective and to be very self-critical and really, you know, challenge them themselves to think about, you know, how, how are they, you know, how they can and how we can reconcile our personal feelings or personal connections to sport, which oftentimes, you know, have, have been in existence for several decades um, compared to all of the really critical things that we know about it. And when I mean critical, I mean all the things in terms of how we think critically about sport and how it functions in our lives and how it serves people, how it exploits people and harms people, et cetera. And, and as I listened to the first few episodes thereafter, again, just like continued to be really impressed um, by the breadth and the depth that they went into in every single episode. And, and really, that was what really convinced me to want to reach out to Nathan, at least according to my memory, is that I reached out to Nathan and pitched myself. Um, you know, I study memory, and so I know memory can be very, very faulty. So maybe that's my way of patting myself on the back. You know, I don't really know. But I remember reaching out to Nathan and, and pitching myself on the podcast. And he had said something like, oh, we were already, you know, they were already thinking about having me 
me on as they were planning out the, the, the sort of scope of their early, the, the podcast early trajectory. And, and, and then when obviously before I, I did my episode, I was very excited and just really, really prepared as thoroughly as possible. And part because the, the, the history that I study is, is a, can be perceived as being a bit niche and as being a bit narrow and something that American Western audiences are not familiar with at all, or at least they're familiar with, with certain perceptions and misconceptions that they have about it, but certainly don't really know much about Hungary at all, you know, if anything um, at all. Joanna, her episode was just incredibly brilliant. The attention to detail, the precision, the nuance in what she was talking about was exactly what this podcast is supposed to be. Um, you know, we, st- we started that interview and we were so kind of, we were so struck by her insight, her care, her preparation, um, and most importantly, how much sort of w- without even expecting it, how much it was clear that she shared our vision about sport, um, a vision that sport that we need to look at sport above all and measure sport above all and understand it above all as a place where harm can happen. Um, Sport isn't for harm. Sport doesn't have to be harmful. But we need to judge and evaluate sport based on the amount of harm it causes. That really should come first in our analysis of its merits. It was so clear in talking to her that uh, she shared that vision with us. And so we were delighted to, to ask her to participate and, and beyond thrilled that she joined us. And I am really, I'm so grateful to them for everything that has ensued this year. They are uh, incredible comrades to work with and to think with. Um, so I want to thank them really deeply for the opportunity to collaborate with them this year. We called this podcast the end of sport, you know, for a couple reasons. Obviously, um, one reason was that we were actually experiencing for the first time in our lifetimes a, a literal end to sport. Sport suddenly stopped happening and it wasn't entirely clear if it would start happening again or what it would look like when it started again because everything obviously was thrown into a kind of radical uncertainty. The meaning that we're probably the most well-known for is that we want to abolish college football. That kind of became a big thing that was that we said at the beginning and that a lot of people um, disagreed with, um, which people are allowed to disagree. Um, but of course, the idea there is, is that the college football is fundamentally exploitative and is racially exploitative because of a racial capitalist system. And that we hope that in, in, by, by abolishing it, that we can create a more equitable, just sporting future for football athletes. But for me, my, my initial question actually had more to do with returning to play. What would that look like? What would sport be coming out of this universe-changing um, experience uh, and situation. And the first corollary of that question for me is actually, what will this look like for participants? And how will the structure of our current advanced capitalist society um, further exploit and harm 
those people that we have long been harming and those folks that have long experienced um, exploitation, injustice, violence, etc., at the hands of a capitalist system, particularly in the context of sport and sporting culture. Now, clearly, very soon after, um, sport resumed. There was no end um, anymore. And, and that kind of brings us to the other meaning of the name that I always saw, saw in it, which is that we weren't just talking about the cessation of sport, but also the ends of sport, right? For what purpose do we engage in sport? What does sport actually accomplish? What is it for? Can we reimagine sport outside of this system? Is there a sort of new beginning or can we even imagine a new beginning to the end of this style or this formation of sporting culture? And that really is the purpose of this podcast project, right? And I, and I think that um, what we actually saw is that the, the very resumption, the fact that we no longer were at the end of sport, confirmed the ends of sport, which is to say um, the capitalist ends of sport. The fact that sport in this society, uh, in North America, uh, not, not exclusively North America, but that's sort of been our focus this year, um, sport is played for cash. It's, it's played in order to drive revenue and those motivations have profound impacts on those who participate in the context of sport. Um, and it produces, that imperative produces uh, incredible amounts of harm in all sorts of different ways. Uh, project of specifically racial capitalism in sport and the patriarchal dynamics that it contains. And so um, I think that the, the pandemic more than anything else, crystallized exactly how dangerous a pursuit sport actually is and has always been, right? But it became clearer than ever during this time. You know, I love sport, but that is a product of socialization. If anything, this year has forced me to face up to the fact that we're often, I think, too generous to it, to sport. We're too willing to say that the imperatives of sport justify exploitation and harm. I guess one misconception that people have is that by by using the term sort of abolishing college football, that it means that you know we want to take away sport um, for athletes and that we want that we want to take it away and that we want to totally ruin it. Um, that's a very reductive and simplistic and um, incorrect understanding. And again, we've explained this across many episodes. Um, we want to eliminate the exploitation. We want to eliminate the harmful aspects of it. And, it, you know, as, as I think it's been shown again and again, it's not as if the NCAA is just going to say, okay, we're going to address the issue of racism and make it disappear immediately, right? The, 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 the system of white supremacy, uh, along with sexism and misogyny, um, homophobia, uh, transphobia, all these things are fundamental to the system of modern sports. It's a mod part of the part and parcel of the modern sport project. So we can't just really reform these systems to eliminate any of these, these um, discriminatory facets. And, and this is why we, we call for abolishing and restructuring from the ground up. I know there are people who would disagree with me, but the most important struggle for me in the world of sport isn't the struggle to increase access and opportunity. 
the most important struggle is turning into turning sport into something that is worth participating in that we should aspire to that makes lives better uh, and i know that we produce an almost mythical understanding of sport as such a thing right sport as this site of character building and team building um and pleasure and it can be those things but i don't really think that the sporting cultures that exist today for the most part match that vision um and until they do making sport a more humane place for participation seems to me to be the top priority and you know sport has retained and sort of built this reputation for being this incredible only positive thing in society that builds all of these great characteristic traits amongst participants um, at all levels and I think that this is not only a sort of reductionist understanding, but it's also just incorrect. Sport is a vessel through which harm, exploitation, violence, discrimination, inequality, and all of the things that we as scholars tend to critique, sport is part and parcel of that project. And I think we need to challenge sport and sporting culture much more than we do. Now, when I, when I mentioned how the end of sport name has many different meanings and sort of is a multifaceted meaning, um, I think the, the kind of most central one is that we want to end the harm in sport. And that harm can be racial exploitation, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, right? It can be all, and it is all of these things. And I, and, you know, and, and this is because again, because of the way that modern sport was, was, was created from the beginning and in terms of, it was created to include only certain groups of people and exclude everybody else and to harm any, everybody else and to use sport, use sport as a tool of power. The level of coercion within sport is, is, is absolute. It's, it's, it's enormous and it really is pervasive across all sports all modern sports that are based in Western culture and ideologies. And through our episode, through our episodes and something we will continue doing is to show that from every angle and in every single sport, that there is this propaganda or propagandistic notion that sport equals good and that all physical activity is beneficial. And, And that those are the things that we should be thinking about and prioritizing, but you know, I think what our episode, what our work is showing and what it will continue to show is that we need to be asking really core questions when we, when we, when we, when we are just focusing on these so-called positive or beneficial or good elements of sport, we need to be asking ourselves questions such as who are the people that are telling these things? What are their aims and agendas? And, oh, and along with many other questions, one that is very important to us at the end of sport is what role do athletes play in shaping the conditions in which they play and perform? And, um, you know, as if it wasn't clear before, the onset of the pandemic and the ongoing conditions of the pandemic, the ongoing conditions of the vaccine rollout 
really have just demonstrated over and over that coercion is fundamental to the way that modern sport functions and the way that people enforce and implement and maintain modern sports within its current structure. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the things that that really stood out for me this year in the world of sport. Um, I'm going to go through just just a few kind of um, a few elements of this year of pandemic sport that have changed or um, or consolidated my understandings of how this world works. The first thing I want to say is that uh, the pandemic certainly has confirmed my position personally for myself on the social reproductive nature of athletic labor. You know, and what I mean by that is, and I wrote about this prior to the pandemic, that um, the business of sport for me relies upon the fact that it does something for fans. It gives something to fans. It provides fans with a sense of meaning, purpose, and identity. Sports are absolutely not needed right now. And this is an argument that we've gotten again and again and again from the beginning. Some that came out um, on Twitter over the summer with some academics and more recently was defended by some academics um, that, um, that because of the mental health impact of the pandemic, the people deserve sports. And that's absolutely not true. That comes from a fundamentally harmful exploitative mindset that some people are deserving of mental health, um, access to mental health resources over others, and that um, accessing mental health resources such as watching sports um, it ignores the exploitative and harmful elements of it, right? So you're the, 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 this argument, the people who are making this argument are completely divorcing the fact that they are benefiting mental health-wise based on the exploitation and harm of other people. The consequence of that sort of affective deprivation, right, is a sense of desire for something that will satiate those kinds of needs for collectivity and connection, meaning and purpose. And sport can do that. It can give that to people through fandom. But for that to happen, it requires something of athletic workers. It requires, in my estimation, it produces a structural imperative for physical and emotional sacrifice on the part of those athletic workers. Because it requires that sport is played in such a way as if the stakes appear to be life or death. And let's be clear, we have heard over and over again throughout this pandemic, apologists and fans who get on their platform and say, we need sport to deal with lockdowns, to deal with quarantines, because we deserve it. And that is a fundamentally harmful and problematic approach. Because why are fans entitled to the athletic labor of others? What is it about sport that sustains this power relation of observer with athletic labor when we critique it in so many other areas of the world? Players have to play as if they're willing to give up their lives, their bodies, 
for the project of the team's success. And that in turn allows the fan to build a really profound identity through sport, through those physical trials and tribulations that someone else experiences. So that they achieve a kind of vicarious form of pleasure and meaning and belonging. And they can achieve that with their fellow fans, but the athlete's body really is just an avatar for that. And that has profound consequences for the athletic worker who often lives then with lifelong physical harm and also experiences the emotional deprivation that comes from having been the center of so much meaning, vessel for it. They become kind of effectively emptied out once the career is over and that meaning is deferred to a new body, a new athletic worker. And they are left kind of alone with this sort of narcotic withdrawal um, they'll never achieve that sense of plenitude again that came from being in the spotlight. And they'll never have necessarily the body again that was capable of so much physical agency and accomplishment. And it's our societal entitlement to that labor and, and to those various manifestations of harm and violence on the bodies and the minds of athletic laborers that really makes me want to keep challenging the system. We've built sports up in this way. We've done this. This is the project of elite sports. And it can be undone. And it really takes a willful blindness, a willful blindness to maintain the stance. And, and I want to appeal too to scholars who maintain this stance. You know, we talk a lot about how we as scholars, regardless of whatever position we're in, um, in, the, in, the, in academia and higher education, et cetera, we across the board feel that our labor is severely undervalued and severely exploited. And I know that obviously differs on many different levels. Um, but yet our heads and bodies are not being severely bashed in every single day. And I say this not to invalidate the exploitation of scholars. I'm not saying this to invalidate the real health issues that that scholars face. And this is something that I've talked about on Twitter that I don't, I don't think it's worth centering my health issues here. Um, cause I just, that's not the point, but, but it can say both and, and, and I think recognizing the both and allows us to think really critically about the roles that we as academics we as people who ostensibly have really fantastic uh, uh, cr critical thinking skills, this is what we say about ourselves, but yet the inability and or the unwillingness to actually look at ourselves in the mirror and question, you know, what are we contributing to? I think this, this is hugely problematic. To me, the pandemic absolutely underlined that dynamic in sport because what we saw is out of, again, the precisely the same imperative, the imperative to produce revenue in the context of the world of sport. We saw athletes who, again, I say, are always subjected to physical harm in the context of high-performance spectator sport, or in this case, subjected to an actual plague, right? The risk of contracting a plague, even before we knew the implications. Way over 500,000 people have died in the United States alone um, because of this horrific disease. We know that there are potentially, in many cases, lifelong consequences, really profound lifelong consequences to contracting this disease. 
And yet, even as that information was unfolding and we couldn't comprehend and really understand the full scope and magnitude of the harm this was inflicting upon people across the world, all we knew was that it was. Athletic workers were put right back on the front lines and asked to subject their bodies to illness so that people could find meaning in the context of a hyper-isolated and alienated existence. For the pandemic, of course, compounded all of the previously existing dynamics of our sort of late capitalist society by, for those lucky enough not to have to be classified as essential workers and subjected to the illness themselves, um, sequestered people sequestered people in their own private spaces, right? Really divorced from society and one another. And that produced, of course, a really profound sense of longing for meaning and community. Exactly the things they had gone to for, from in sport previously, right? So there was this real push from fans, from leagues, to get players back on the fields and courts and ice surfaces and play again. And it was that rush and the continued rush, I think, is important to note, back to play that highlights, illustrates, and really reifies the broader structural problems of elite capitalist sport. That we are willing to put those bodies at risk to please the system, to please capital, to please our own alienation with that capitalist system, and to get through our everyday life. And very few interventions actually challenge that approach. And that is what the broad project of this podcast is, to provide that voice in at least some way, in some form, to say, hey, sport is actually part and parcel of a lot of society's biggest issues. Every part of that is a symptom of how misguided we are in our approach to sport. Because for me, what should have come first during all of this time was what we should have come to understand was most important was health, well-being, safety, humanity. The understanding that athletic workers are not producing something essential. Grocery store workers are doing essential work. Care workers in all sectors, hospitals and others, are doing essential work. There is work that must be done for people to survive and subsist. And unfortunately, one of the manifest functions of this advanced capitalist society is that those folks are not being supported by the system. Those folks who are essential are not getting the support they need in terms of remuneration, 
in terms of benefits, in terms of priority for vaccines. And the same system that's putting those essential workers at, in harm's way, at an increased risk of catching a deadly virus, is doing the same to a very much non-essential service in athletic laborers. And all of this is to benefit a certain class in society. All of this benefits the rich. And all of it victimizes those in our society who are already most vulnerable. The project is all the same, and it serves very few people who are already wealthy and already able and willing to coerce and control the lives of laborers. And sport does not qualify. We should never have been putting people in danger for sport. And that's something we continue to have to, I think, grapple with as we move to a new phase, let's say, this pandemic, um, a new era that emerges beyond it. No lessons have been learned, in my estimation, from this. We've just deepened the same dehumanizing habits that we've always had in the context of sport. And that's really dangerous because it comes at an incredibly profound human cost. Another issue that's really stood out for me during the context of the pandemic, um, and this is, it really emerged for me in part through the kind of debates about college sport, right? And whether we should be, whether people should be participating in college sport during the pandemic was this question of athletic labor as a consensual process. Is it consensual? I think we need to think a lot more seriously about how athletic labor is embedded in the social structure, which is to say that we need to recognize that the liberal myth of freedom, agency, choice, masks the material forms of inequality that constrain and coerce people into making, at times, what is only the best of a series of very bad choices. When a choice is between a range of bad options, it isn't actually a choice. And I would add that when people are socialized in an ideological environment that fetishizes a cultural pursuit, excuse me, when, that fetishizes a cultural pursuit such as sport, again, their agency in that context is constrained. This is all to say that racial capitalism has produced the conditions in the U.S. context that make sacrificial forms of sport appealing modes of social mobility precisely because of how many other avenues are materially foreclosed to people. The participation of athletes in sport does not signify consent so much as it reveals the structural coercion that continues to shape U.S. society. Football, particularly, is predicated on this structural coercion for its own steady supply of sacrificial labor. When college athletes said they wanted to play, that had everything to do with the commitments, the sacrifices that had already been made. It had everything to do with the fact that higher the access to higher education is foreclosed so many because of its 
absolutely exorbitant cost beyond the athletic labor that essentially opens that door. We cannot justify sport to ourselves based on the fact that there are people who are lining up to play sport. We have produced a world in which lining up to play sport seems like one of the best ways of building a good life. But that says less about sport and more about the society we live in more broadly and how profoundly harmful and dehumanizing it is in so many ways for so many people. The events of this year have made it abundantly clear just how tightly imbricated the sports media is with the athletic leagues they cover. The most obvious sign of this is the incredibly swift normalization of COVID sport. Um, And that normalization, of course, as I was talking about before, it serves athletic capital, but it couldn't be accomplished without the complicity of the media, the willingness of the media to frame sport during a plague as normal and acceptable and to swiftly shift back to talking about the action instead of the consequences of that action. To talk about people out with COVID like they talk about injury reports. And by the way, injury reports themselves are a normalized form of harm. The fact that we talk about it as essentially an obstacle to performance imperatives and not damage and harm that's actually done to human bodies. That's a problem with sport at the best of times. And so, you know, I guess none of us should have been surprised that we could so quickly start talking about sport, start talking about COVID in exactly the same way in the context of sport. And that's what we saw happen. And the media had a huge role to play in that because the sports media relies on exactly the same athletic labor to support its own political economy as the leagues themselves do. The incentives are perfectly aligned. Athletic labor holds up both of these industries. And so they are equally inclined to exploit that labor and to naturalize its subjection to forms of extreme harm. Now, as listeners probably know, um, an increasing interest of ours on the podcast is this issue of sports media, public scholarship, and and harassment. And I'm not going to go into the personal details because we've talked about this a lot, but just just to really highlight that this has been a growing interest of ours. And this is something that we were aware of, and and we saw this happening to other scholars in real time who were who were thankfully who were willing to talk about it on Twitter. Um, and just again, I say willing because this is something that's very difficult to talk about. You uh, unfortunately open yourself to receive even harsher criticism because people choose to respond to you know opening up about this stuff with really really harmful um, criticism and invectives. And we saw this happening to other people, such as Dr. Sammy Shulk, Dr. Laura Burnett, 
Dr. Jamie Goodall, Dr. Goodall, who was harassed um, mercilessly for writing a critical sport piece about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers being based on pirates who raped and pillaged and did all these awful things. And she wrote it for the Washington Post and then was left to dry when people were saying horrible things about her, just truly horrible things. Um, and this happened, I don't know, a month or a couple of weeks before what happened to us. And, you know, after seeing these things happen to people and people talking about them and attending at least one webinar uh, with the FIRE, a free speech organization about how to deal with these things, I was already aware of what might happen. We had sort of talked about it, you know, should we hold off talking about certain topics on the podcast until we feel like we're, you know, when we're not bogged down in teaching and we feel like we have the time to really address it and protect ourselves is something we have talked about. And, and, you know, I thought I knew what to expect and how to respond. And, and to an extent I did. Um, um, and, and I, you know, thinking back, I, I do think that I did all the things that I need to do, but just to emphasize something other people have already said is that no one can, can really prepare for the emotional and the psychological impact of what this has. And, and I, and I really want to emphasize um, that, that no one can really, at least it doesn't seem like anyone can really prepare for that. So when people see, journalists, when they see scholars, when they see anybody talking about this, um, you know, think about what they might be going through emotionally and, and psychologically, um, because it is really hard to imagine. Um, sports media is a racist, misogynistic, transphobic, et cetera, enterprise and institution. And this institution and the people, most of the people in it, they want to maintain these harmful aspects of it. And, and as a result, they do not care for their own. Um, and, and in some ways, there are some similarities here to academia, for sure. And I say this not to detract from the fact that this is something that sports media faces every single day. People in academia face this every single day. But again, to kind of ex draw the linkage there to suggest that there needs to be more solidarity that academics have for, for journalists. Um, because I think, I think again, extending solidarity, which is something that we also talk about in the podcast would really help all of our, help everyone. But I also want to talk here a little bit more specifically about a recent event that has revealed just how difficult it is to offer clear-eyed critique in this industry. When we first talked to Hamil Javeri in episode 16 of the show, I remarked at the time that I was amazed she was able to offer the commentary she did from within a mainstream publication like USA Today. Honestly, I'm devastated to say that that comment really sadly foreshadowed the loss of Hemmel's job for what that company recently framed as anti-white racism. Something that actually can't exist in the context of the white supremacist society that we live in in the United States. And by the way, the other reason why, in my estimation, she lost her job, although it wasn't acknowledged by USA Today or Gannett, was almost certainly for a column she wrote critical of the anti-LGBTQ plus policy of Oral Roberts University. Superb column. Let me be clear, there is no sports journalist working today I admire more than Hemel Javeri. The fact that her work was essentially considered intolerable by USA Today reveals just how difficult it is to provide a critical lens in this industry. Well, after a year, 
I would say that, that this is the project of the end of sport. We are here through our interviews and our own journalistic and scholarly forays to do the work we think needs to be done to challenge the sports industrial complex and its myriad forms of exploitation and harm in solidarity with athletic workers everywhere. That's probably what makes us just about the most despised sports podcast there is, based on the reviews and ratings we tend to receive. And you know what? Kind of like it like that. I I never would have guessed that that I would be doing something like this, and I'm just so so thrilled with it, um, and just have learned so much, and I've just really, you know, my my scholarship and my teaching have just been so enriched um, as a part uh, as a result of being part of the podcast. And I'm so grateful to Nathan and Johanna for for embarking on this journey, and to all of our guests and everyone who tunes in each week. Thank you so much for supporting this project. It means the world to all of us. And we have just had so, so many people who have willingly and so generously given us their time, given us their expertise, given us their perspectives and experiences. And I mean, it, it should be quite obvious, but we literally could not do to the podcast if, if these people were not uh, willing and so generous with all of their time and their thoughts. And like I've said, just have really been sort of very generous in terms of teaching us, you know, what, 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 are, what are the things that we need to be thinking about when it comes to sport and harm, how to, you know, hopefully eliminate it. Um, and just sort of the, the, the important and very, um, difficult things that we need to be thinking about as, as fans of sport, as practitioners, et cetera. Uh, and I want to also thank all of the really amazing guests that we've had um I'm so privileged to talk to every single person who has been willing to spend their time and, and and offer their insight to us um and also to listeners because i really um this has wildly exceeded my expectations in terms of how many people have been listening and paying attention and giving us feedback um and you know, I just I feel like everyone kind of shares in this project in that way. And, and I want to thank all of you for that, because uh, it has been a real blessing for me to participate, to participate in this. The, the gaining of friendships um, that have that 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 I've and I think we've all experienced as a result of being in the podcast. Um, I've obviously gained a huge, really life changing intellectual and collaborative friendships with Derek and Nathan. Um, and it's really hard to put to words what this friendship means to me. And it's not only that, but again, like all of her guests, I mean, everyone that we've had on, um, it's just really enriched, um, my life and my understanding of the world and the role of sport and sports in that world. And just people that we, we remain in constant contact with on Twitter. Um, thank you to our amazing, incredible guests. We are, we are so lucky to have had you on and just, I can't, I can't, again, I cannot put to words how appreciative I am of you, of your kindness, of your generosity, of your critical, important work that you are doing. And that many of you are fighting to do, literally fighting to do every single day. Um, especially, you know, our, our minoritized colleagues who 
uh, whether they're black or brown or have another kind of minoritized identity that just literally are fighting to exist every single day when there are people being shot and killed by our white institutions, people that are who are being, you know, we're, we're, who live in states or have or you see states that are passing, you know, anti-trans bills that are trying to deny your existence to basic and necessary medical care. Um, we see you, we support you. Um, we'll continue fighting the fight um, literally as much as we can. And then lastly, of course, thank you for the audience, for listening, for um, supporting us, for adding to our ideas, to engaging with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I, I really just can't wait to see what um, this next year brings for us. So it's been one year and over 70 episodes recorded. And what else can we say but thank you? Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in each week, for downloading, for supporting or not supporting our Patreon, for reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram, for engaging with us as we kind of embarked on this sort of intellectual journey that we hope to continue going forward. So here's to another year, and hopefully this one is a little bit better. In solidarity from the end of Support Crew.